Okay, so last week we wrapped up this, the systematic theology portion of this study uh, on the inerrancy or the idea of inerrancy, the inerrant nature of Scripture itself. This week we're going to be looking at the history of the church's understanding of this idea, right? So if you're new to this, like if you're like, what does he mean, inerrancy? Like you may miss the last two classes. Um, I would encourage you to go back, listen to the podcast. I got it up better late than never. I got, I got the last one up last night as I was kind of getting my final thoughts together for this morning. So that's up there if you want to go uh, kind of pick up on that. There, We are going to kind of be piggybacking off of that lesson. So there's going to be some things that we're going to talk about today that, we're, that are going to seem like we just kind of breezed over it. But that's because we talked about it last week. So... Uh, just be aware of that. So last week, just kind of so you know kind of what I'm thinking about there. Last week, we started looking through the New Testament and what we were, we were asking ourselves the question, what did the writers of the New Testament think when about the Old Testament and whether or not it contained errors and in what, in what areas they could trust it and what we, what we kind of discussed last week is that, is that by looking at the writings of the New Testament authors, we can come to the conclusion that even in the minutia, even in the, the fine details, when they were thinking about the, the past and what Scripture would speak on history, they felt that they could trust Scripture without question, right? And, and kind of the idea being for us is that shouldn't we take the same kind of approach that the writers of the New Testament took when we consider Scripture? Shouldn't we try to get our minds in the same zone that they had theirs in? Right, because and and the reason that we the reason that we address that or I think need to address that is because in more recent history, like the times that we find ourselves in, one thing that we're going to find, and this is part of the kind of we're going to start at the end and then jump back to the beginning today when we're when we're thinking about inerrancy and in scripture itself. So a couple of the things, and and you probably are not unfamiliar with this, that, that the trustworthiness of Scripture is under attack. Can we, can we all agree that that's, a, that, that's a, that that's well known among us? Like that's not something that we miss out on. That's not something that's, that's, that's fallen out of view for us. We understand that all around us, if you say that Scripture is without error, then unless you're in the inner circle, right? You're going to find pushback from the world. They're going to be like, really, really, really? Like, and then, and then what will happen is the discussion quickly will become uh, hostile or you'll, you'll feel pressured in some way because what will happen is they'll say things like, well, what about this issue? What about this issue? What about this issue? Thank you, Internet, for making everyone experts on nothing. Right? Like That's essentially what's happened, is that you think that you're an expert on things because you found it on the first page of Google, and what you didn't realize is that anybody and their mama can get a website out there and get it on the front page of Google saying whatever. So we've lost the ability to do legitimate research. Go ahead. Expand on your thought of, you know, if somebody comes to you with a bunch of issues, if you can take their biggest issue and reasonably assume that you could do the same to all their smaller issues, well, in today's time and for most of history, people are always 
thinking that the Bible is just pure fiction and it's just nothing but stories, but it's just because I guess a lot of people don't feel like they're, well, they don't have the faith to just believe that that is true. Um, a lot of people need actual evidence or physical things to believe in something. Um, the story that we were talking about one day where they found um, the remnants of an old city in the exact location where Sodom and Gomorrah was located and the remains <coughs> showed that it looked like, like 40 nuclear bombs had went off in the city, which coincides perfectly with fireballs and meteors from heaven raining down and destroying the city. Yeah. So, I mean, if we can take a giant event like that, couldn't you reasonably assume that a lot of the smaller events, at least, were true as well? This is. I think there's. I think there's a good point, especially when it comes to historical events. I want to say one thing quickly, though, is that the 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 historically, it's not the case that 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 scripture has has undergone the same scrutiny as it's undergone in more modern times, and 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 I think that's for a couple of different reasons. Um, So, kind of the the scientific approach or the scientific method in coinciding with it has has also coincided with um, the the increased scrutiny that's come on Scripture itself. So, you can kind of find in kind of in time and in history, these two things have have uh, coincided with one another, and even the church's approach in certain ways of of approaching and dealing with these questions has kind of evolved. I don't think that's a bad thing, right? I don't think that it's a bad thing that people ask questions. I, what I think is what I think is a bad thing is that is that most people don't ask the right questions and they don't explore things with any um, with any depth. Or insight, and that's only progressed even more rapidly with the with the proliferation of information. It, whether or not that information is true or false, I'm just saying the proliferation of information that's come that's come about in our lifetimes has only made this issue worse. Because you can find a lot of false information, and most people are not well trained in weeding out the noise to find out the things of value. And this is why I say things like the first page of Google. Like you, people would take it's 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 on Wikipedia. It's on the first page of Google as being like now it's the gospel fact that's objective reality. And I can go and tweak Wikipedia to say whatever I want. Now if somebody hopefully will come behind me and fix it, right? But how do you know? Like what is the foundation of truth? How would you know? These are the kind of questions that we need to be asking. One, one, one second. Um, and so these are the things that I think people have been asking, right? This is why I think that it's a good thing ultimately that these pressures have come on. Not because the, ch- the church or the church's understanding will be crushed by these things, but if we are correct, and God is who He claims to be, then what, we, what should we expect from genuine pursuits of truth? All truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. Right? So what we should expect is truth to be found out. And this is, I would, I would go so far as to say is that this has happened time and time and time and time and time again. 
right? So we've got Sir William Ramsey, and this is to the historical thing, um, who who he started out, and y'all heard his name before because I've used him in past references. I know Dustin's made references to him. He's a historian. His his he started out hostile to the gospel, impressing in to prove the gospel wrong. He's one of those guys that found out that much of what the book of Luke, the book of Acts speaks in the minutia, right? Like in those fine-grained details of the titles of men, of locations, where people of, of the past would look and they would say, Luke's wrong here. The writer of Luke's wrong here. It wasn't that because we know it to be this. In time, what's happened is Luke has been proved time and time again to be accurate. Sir William Ramsey came in to disprove him completely after pressing in on the details. He came to be a believer, right? And he, this great historian, well-known, he makes the claim that Luke is a historian of the first rank. That his details are amazing, right? And accurate. And always. So, I welcome the pressing in. And we should not concern ourselves that somehow this is going to be, that like our world is going to be flipped upside down. Would you want to believe a lie? Would you? Then, then let things get pressed in on because the truth will rise out of that. Right? So long as you don't have a heart contrary to it. And I think this is what we find that in most of the cases, it is not the details or the evidence that causes someone to turn, but it's the heart that causes someone to turn. So like kind of before we officially got started this morning, some of the conversation was around some like apologetics and how to approach like problem text and scripture. Right? Most of the time what you will find and I've found this Countless number of times as I've, as, as I've had people come to me with these questions and, and ask things like this is that most of the time it is not that they want to know the truth, is that they want to have something so that they don't have to believe the truth, right? Like that more often than not tends to be the case is the heart does not want it to be true. And that's because what Scripture speaks about the heart of man is in fact true, right? When Paul speaks in the book of Romans of the state of humanity, that there's none righteous, no, not one, he's speaking absolute truth about the nature of man there, right? What does it mean that there is not one righteous man? That means that none of your good deeds have made you righteous. Right? Just because you do good doesn't mean you go to heaven. And a lot of people feel that even though they do good things and they're going to go to heaven, they don't. But Ken, here's, here's, here's the thing. If all good things come from God... Right? If all good things come from God, can we deny God and do any good at all? Right? This would be like like one thing that I one thing that I would say there is that you can do no good if you steal that good. Does that make sense? 
Like what? What? I want to. I want to clear. I want to clarify. I want to clarify what I mean by that. So, if you must steal the idea of goodness from God Himself to make yourself look good, then what you've done is lie about the character and nature of God. This is this is why that Scripture would say that we can't please God if we don't know God and trust in God, right? So, like, there is no one who does good. Perfectly good. None. Like, so how do we know this? How do we trust in this? This is where, this is where I would say, like, the foundation of this comes from our understanding that, that Scripture is without error. That what we will find, and this is, I like the, I like the way that, that this last quote on the page that I handed, handed it out, I let, this is a good this is a good way to kind of describe I think what inerrancy is or what our understanding of, of inerrancy should be. So inerrancy means and I'm just going to read it straight from the page. Inerrancy means that all that when all facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical or life. Sciences. So that's what I want us to consider when we consider. And w- there's a couple of things to take out of that. Is proper interpretation is true? Like all facts being known, we don't know all facts right now, and we're in that process of discovery, right? So, so those are some things to consider when we consider this. Is that when when the end of days has approached us, when we are on the other side of eternity, looking back, there will be no question that the scripture that was given to us in the original writings was without error in any way, in everything that they affirm. And we spoke about inerrancy that, that Scripture doesn't speak to everything, right? Scripture says nothing about quantum physics, and um, it, there's lots of things that Scripture doesn't speak about at all. But in the things that Scripture speaks about, Scripture speaks it completely and wholly truthfully. We find in the day that we live today that that is under attack. I want us to go back. I want us to rewind back. And start thinking about how has the church approached this? How has the church thought about this throughout history? And, and I'm going to be kind of leaning on it. I printed out and gave you all those because I want you all to take this away. All of this has come from that same book that I've been telling you. Um, and there's two books that I've been recommending to you, the Historical Theology and the Systematic Theology. Um, all of these quotes come from... Uh, come from that, so I've kind of printed it off so that you could have it and take it with you because I wasn't sure how much of this we would get into. Um, there's a couple of things that I do want us to get into or, or consider. Is I want us to, uh, and this is the second piece of that, that the early church fully accepted the complete truthfulness of Scripture, as did the Jewish people before them. So, and this is what we did last week, right? That kind of summarizes what we did last week as we were exploring the New Testament, as we were looking to see that the early church, the apostles, and, and the New Testament writers themselves fully accepted the trust, the truthfulness of Scripture. We see that in the way that. They they used and relied on Scripture. We know as well that, that they got that understanding from the Jews that came before them, of which many of them uh, were as the early church was blossom, blossoming. Um, m- many of those early church leaders were from the people of the Jews. Um, so uh, with that in mind, there's there's two things that, that we kind of look at um, that, that fall from that. So, so two p- biblical examples of this attitude that we should have, I think, 
the psalmist quoted, or David here said, The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace. This is Psalm chapter, uh, this is Psalm 12, 6. So this is, this is kind of a, 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 an excerpt from that. So the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, in a furnace of clay, uh, purified seven times. Um, and Jesus, uh, confirmed this, acknowledging that the Father, your word is truth. That comes out of John chapter 17, verse 17. The earliest Christians expressed the same, uh, the same exact belief. Uh, Clement of Rome affirmed the complete truthfulness of the Old Testament, saying, You have searched the Scriptures which are true, which are given by the Holy Spirit. You know that nothing unrighteous or counterfeit is written in them. Another church father uh, spoke of the Scripture of the Scripture of truth, um, and yet, another church, church father speaks of the scriptures as being indeed, saying the scriptures are indeed perfect. So, um, in the early church, the understanding of the early church fathers was that scripture itself was perfect, that it was complete, that it was without error. There's a couple of things that I want to, that I want to kind of look at and, and, and consider, because there's a couple of things, um, kind of as I was going through it that I was like, that's pretty cool. I like that they pointed that out. I like that they said that because I think there's there's some interesting things that can be pointed out from it. So Origen, um, criticizing heretical views, um, argued in uh, he argued from the unfavorable and derogatory stories found in scriptures. This is an interesting thing because I think this has good merit um, from an, a kind of an apologetical standpoint, right? He said, It would be quite strange for the biblical authors to present such shameful and embarrassing acts, including those in which they themselves were involved, unless their accounts were portrayed the actual facts. Scripture tells the truth even when uh, the stories it recounts are ugly. So consider this. If you were going to tell a lie, would you tell a favorable lie or an unfavorable lie? What would you tend towards? Like, if you were going to lie about what you did yesterday, what is your tendency going to be there? You're going to make yourself look good, right? What would be the benefit of making yourself look bad? What would be the benefit of telling shameful lies about yourself? Is there any benefit for you? If you're going to tell a lie, does it benefit you to tell a lie that makes you look bad? Is that why we lie? The police show up at your house and they're like, where were you yesterday? And you're like, hmm, this sounds good. I was out killing three people, burying them in my backyard. Right? Like, <laughs> You're going to make up that kind of lie? You're going to make up a lie that's going to get you in trouble? Right? So here's one of the things that we find that's very interesting about Scripture. Scripture tells the truth even when the truth does not make the person that it speaks of look good. Right? Like, if you were going to lie, if someone were going to write a story about King David, why would they include his transgressions? If they were lies. Are you that poor of a storyteller that you can't make up a good story? That you're going to tell lies that make your king look bad? Right? So consider that when you think about script, and this is what like if you were going to put someone on on the stand on the witness stand, and they were accounting for events, you can trust someone who tells the truth even when it does not make them look good. 
in a way that you can't trust someone who would leave those things out, right? So we can find evidence and support for the trustworthiness of Scripture in the fact, and I think that this is something that, that Origen points out well in, in his consideration of the text, and I think this continues on, like, like this is, a, this is a commonly used fault and idea in, in apologetics, especially when dealing with Scripture today, that is not new to today, that finds its origins all the way back, in the early church, right? This idea that, that, that there's some merit to the stories that are told when those stories include things that are not in the best light of the authors of those things. Why would you, if you were going to make up a lie to start the early church, listen, if, if, if I'm writing that story, when Jesus is put on the cross, all of us is not fleeing, right? Like we're going to beat, we were there to the bitter end and we, you know, we overcome. I'm not going to tell you that when the guy who sacrificed everything for me was in that moment that I was so cowardly that I fled the scene not to be heard from. Because that makes me look like a coward. That's not the kind of stories people make up. You know this, because when you yourselves make up stories, you make up stories that make you look good. Otherwise, you just tell the truth. <laughs> if the, right? We lie to make ourselves look good. Right? So that's something that I wanted to point out as we kind of consider this, um, kind of looking back. There's, and there's, an, there's another good one. Uh, Arrhenius, and he said, he said this, that all Scripture which has been given... To us by God shall be found by us perfectly consistent. And the parables shall harmonize with those passages which are perfectly plain. And those, and those statements, the meaning of which is clear, shall serve to explain the parables. This is a, I, I'm, I'm going to read this again. If you've got the paper in front of you, it's the one, two, three, four. The fifth paragraph down. I want you to read this and I want you to consider what he's saying here. Right? So he said, Arrhenius says, says this, All Scripture which has been given to us by God shall be found by us perfectly consistent. And the parables shall harmonize with those passages which are perfectly plain in those statements and, and those statements, the meaning of which is clear, shall serve to explain the parables. What he's saying here, this is, uh, and, and one of the reasons that I, that I point this out. So, does he believe that Scripture can be trusted? Yes. Does he believe that Scripture is consistent and without error? Yes. And what conclusion does he come from when he, when he, when he thinks about this? What's the conclusion that he comes to there? Is that you can properly understand the book because it is consistent. Right? You start with an understanding that it's consistent. So you can do proper Bible study by this is this the idea that he brings out here in this quote is proper hermeneutical approach. What do I mean by that? That is the way that you approach scripture. You've heard me say this before, right? This is what he's saying, and you've heard me say this before. Is that when you come in contact with scripture that is confusing to you. Support your understanding by the weight of all of Scripture. 
Right? The easy makes clear the difficult. Right? So you don't... Like, the a proper approach to... to to accurately understanding what God says does not say to you, I'm going to get my understanding of the end days only by reading the book of Revelation. Why? Because if you open that book, it's confusing. So if you use only it to base your understanding of the end, you will come out with a confusing understanding of what reality will be. Right? All of Scripture speaks to these things. Right? And that's the idea that he says here. And, and kind of the conclusion that you can draw from that is because Scripture cannot contradict itself. Its clearer passages can be used to shed light on the more difficult passages so they can be understood. Now, one thing that I want us to take away from that is that the way that you approach your, your own Bible study. Right? Is that an approach that you take? It should be. Right? It should be. You should be letting the clear passages in Scripture steer your understanding of the difficult passages in Scripture, not the other way around, which oftentimes happens. Because we see those more difficult things as 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 like as they're like these like mysteries or something like that. And we like them we like a good mystery, so we start there. Right? And then what happens is if we don't take a, 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 a well... And I would say if, if this is the way that early church people were thinking about this, then this is well-time-tested types of approaches, right? This is an early church father that's laying this out here, right? So this is not like a newfangled way of approaching Scripture. This is the way that Scripture should be approached, Right? And it can be done. This is this is one of the kind of as we as we consider the inerrancy of Scripture and why it's a foundational thing for us to to understand that Scripture is inerrant is that our ability to do proper study of Scripture is founded on the idea that all of Scripture is trustworthy, right? We 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 got that. Y'all follow. Understanding because all of Scripture can be trusted, we can rely on the full weight of Scripture and what it says to things. We can do what we're doing in this class, right? Like this class, we're doing a uh, we're doing a study through sit like the, literally the book is systematic theology, right? We can approach Scripture systematically, looking at all that Scripture says to certain ideas because we understand Scripture to be completely trustworthy. Right, you can trust it, and that's kind of where the foundation for this uh, comes from. So, Augustine, uh, wh- where are we at? Time wise, I hear the bell. We got a couple minutes. So, Augustine, we've talked about him in a couple of class, a couple of classes back. I want to read uh, a quote that that he says. So, again, an, another kind of early church uh, leader. So, he says, "It seems to me that the most disastrous consequences must follow upon our believing that anything false." is found in the sacred books. That is to say that the men by whom the Scriptures have been given to us and committed to writing did put down in these books anything false. For if you once admit 
into such a high sanctuary of authority, one false statement is made in the way of duty. There will not be left any single sentence of those books which, if appearing to anyone difficult in practice or hard to believe, may not by the same fatal rule be explained away as a statement in which, intentionally and under a sense of duty, the author declared what is not true. I'm going to leave it to you to go back and read and read that again because what I want to what I want to, we've we spoke as we kind of got in the two weeks back as we were discussing the idea of inerrancy. One of the things that kind of came up in the discussion that we had is the slippery slope from the point that you say that there is one error to not being able to defend Scripture at all. Right? Y'all remember if you were if you were there in that class, you remember that particular discussion. If not, go back, listen to it again. This is that idea. Right? This is the idea of that slippery slope. And Augustine says it in a little bit of a wordy manner. But again, this is not something that I made up or that we made up during that discussion. This is something that can be traced, this thought can be traced all the way back to the earliest members of the church. Is that if you say that there is even one place in Scripture that might contain falsehood, then all it takes is a little bit of uncomfort on your part to admit another place in Scripture in, into that same category, right? So if, if you admit that this particular point in history and this thing that Scripture says about that particular moment is not 100% trustworthy, then when it says things that are difficult for the culture around us and the culture pushes back on you, you'll, be, you'll say to yourself, maybe this is not true. Maybe this is another one of those places where Scripture is wrong. Who becomes the authority of truth there? Who? You do. You do. Do you understand that? Right? Do you understand the importance that, that Scripture's inerrancy plays in our understanding of all reality? Because what we claim is that, that Scripture speaks truth to us objectively. It's not my opinion of truth. It is God's declaration of what is true. And now, when we say that there's an error, and there's an error here, when we get into that territory, and this is why I say that I'm glad that pressures push in, because what happens is that Scripture, let it fight for itself, right? God is the author of all reality, and if He's indeed given us this book, then I don't have to fight for it in time. He's fighting for it, right? It's His truth. Right. So as we consider these things, as we consider what the like, I, I think that it's an important, and this is why I, that we kind of reordered things a little bit. I think it's important for us to consider what is at stake when we consider our understanding on biblical inerrancy, right? Because there are many in our day who are backing down from the traditional understanding of biblical inerrancy. To where they're saying, well, it speaks truth on things of faith, but it can be wrong on things of history, right? But what happens, and it's a slippery slope, is that as soon as you admit one error, I can trust nothing that it says. Because I can give you a hundred other. As soon as you, if you were to come to me and say, Landon, I think it's wrong here, I could argue you down from any point in Scripture. 
Because you've shifted the focus of where truth comes from. You now become the author of that truth. You now become the one that declares that truth. So it shifts with your opinion. It's no truth becomes it's no longer objective, it becomes subjective, right? Truth is in the eye of the beholder. Speak your truth. Right? Speak your truth. Why do we why do we hear that phrase? Why not speak truth? Right? Do we get that even that phrase that speak your truth is a shifting, right? Truth then becomes subjective. Do y'all, do y'all see that? It's your truth, is it? Only if it is true, right? Because your truth all day long could be that you could fly and you could step off a building and gravity will show you what truth actually is for you, right? You will come... Truth is objective. There are things that are objectively true, whether it's your opinion or not. In our understanding of Scripture, we say that Scripture speaks objective truth to us. It can only do that if it speaks no error. Right? And that's what the church has held throughout history. That's not to say that there have not been people along the way who have disagreed on this point or that point, but but what we should consider is that even through the, the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that the Protestants didn't disagree with the Catholics on is that Scripture spoke holy truth and only truth, and with it without error did it speak it. The differences came in what they considered to be Scripture. Right, And we had that discussion a couple of weeks back. Um, so with that in mind, we'll kind of close out um, our discussion here and then um, we'll get into the sanctuary.